Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. In 1980, Manchester was summed up in people's minds as Kevin Cummins' picture of Joy Division in Hume, looking miserable bleak around half-collapsed buildings. There's been a complete overturning of what Manchester means to young people. Now, investment decision-makers around the world and people under 40 want a lifestyle which they are priced out of in London. That's today's guest, the writer and journalist Andy Spinoza, in the Manchester Evening News earlier this month, talking about his book, Manchester Unspun, Pop, Property and Power in the Original Modern City. This is, unusually, the story of how the resurrection of a dying industrial city was triggered not by development corporations or property speculators, but by pop culture and pop music. The waves of change triggered by Joy Division, the impresario Tony Wilson and his Hacienda Club, the Smiths, and then Manchester House Music and the Stone Roses all had visible effect on Manchester. The book begins in 1980 when there were just 500 people living in the city centre and only five buildings over 20 storeys high. And it ends with a quarter of a million of people living in Manhattan with over 40 skyscrapers built and 40 more on the way. It's an account from punk to the pandemic of how the 1982 opening of the Hacienda gave the kiss of life to a dying city centre. So why did it happen there and could the same magic work in other decaying cities? Andy Spinoza, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, Andrew. So the standing joke is that wherever you go in the world, you'll run into a Mancunian who says uh, Manchester is the best place in the world and whatever this place has got, there's a better one in Manchester. Where does that self-confidence come from? I think the swagger, that's, whether it's an intellectual swagger or, or Liam Gallagher's you know, street walk, is from Manchester's history. You know, It was first industrial city in the modern world. Um, advances in science and technology, such as uh, splitting the atom in the 20s, uh, inventing the first proper computer in the 40s. Um, it gave Manchester a sense of self-confidence, if you like, superiority. Uh, the writer Anthony Burgess always said travelling to London from Manchester was an exercise in condescension. And uh, the founder of Granada TV, Sidney Bernstein, were, was was often heard to say that what um, Manchester did today, London would get round to finding out about tomorrow. So, yeah, I think it's historical. And, of course, when I started my book, all that had really faded and was, um, I think the city had a, a sense of humiliation about it. Um, as you can tell by my accents, I'm from the other end of uh, of the of the M62. Um, but I found that I found the book fascinating. I mean, it's it's obviously been like a rival city to Liverpool, um, where I'm from. The in, the interesting thing is that I was trying to think of other parallels where pop culture drove politics or regeneration, and the only ones I can think of are, you know, possibly Merseybeat, but Liverpool didn't really benefit. Possibly Tony Blair's Cool Britannia. That was almost a photo op uh, thing. Mm. To what extent did music and pop culture really drive that change in Manchester? Well, well, actually, the book was triggered by something that Tony Wilson said in 2007. He said, I don't see this as the story of Joy Division. It was in a documentary about, about Joy Division. I see this as the story of a city. Um, the music that Joy Division made started this great reinvention of Manchester. And, of course, at the time, you know, I thought, well, how pretentious, a classic, kind of absurdly preposterous grandiose Wilsonian statement. But um, during lockdown, with time on my hands, uh, <laughs> I was able to really look back over 40 years. And as a journalist, as a, as a PR man, I was able to to look at the uh, what I call um, sort of a daisy chain, really, of links between what started out as 
bus drivers social club in Hume where the factory records gig nights were first put on with, with punk gigs to this year opening £211 million factory international uh, cutting edge art centre uh, with, with £100 million of government money announced by George Osborne in uh, the House of Parliament where he kind of praised factory records like Conservative Chancellor praising a gang of countercultural revolutionaries. And yeah, I, will, I think I have been able to piece together this uh, chain reaction. It is hard to imagine George Osborne with a stack of crispy ambulance and Stockholm Monsters records, isn't it? But I suppose that the connections are strange ones. Um, you are an adopted Mancunian, as people can probably tell from your accents. Um, and the book is like the parallel story of how you moved there and how it changed you alongside how the city changed around you. Um, you can't really be accused of too much pro, uh, pro-Mancunian bias because your granddad was a scouser, I believe. Uh, wh- why, did you, why did you move there? The music was uh, compelling to me. Um, Buzzcock's my favourite act. Uh, I always see them in London. Actually, I was almost I was more influenced by the writings uh, of people like Paul Morley and John Savage and Mick Middles in the NME and Sounds and the photography of Kevin Cummings. I was receiving a mediated uh, image of Manchester through those weekly inkies that. Uh, people of my generation will remember fondly. Uh, they were incredibly influential in act, and acted as a sort of <laughs> alternative tourist board for Manchester. Uh, all these kind of crumbling, decaying, uh, gothic vistas uh, with moody uh, musicians peering, you know, through through Kevin Cum- Cummings' uh, camera lens. And the kind of characters, you know, Tony Wilson himself, who I was lucky to to meet, you know, when I was a student, all acted as this sort of gravitational pull. And, it, and not just me, of course. I, of course, I met people from all over the country, Manchester University, who were all as much into <laughs> the music of the city as much as uh, their course that they were allegedly studying. Manchester was not the only decaying industrial city with an enormously rich music scene and uh, the occasional tub-thumping impresario promoter. I mean, you know, Sheffield had music, Liverpool had music and, you know, had the kind of heritage of radicalism, uh, you know, the heritage of trade unionism, but also art and creativity and so on. So how come it happened in Manchester and not to the same extent elsewhere? It's a great question. There are some books um, written about, you know, kind of compare and contrasts of you know Liverpool, Sheffield, Leeds, Newcastle, who all had you know similar heritages of going through similar problems. Um, I think it's plain. It's not you know. There's a long record of commentary on Manchester's political leadership. Mm. Ultimately, and my book you know explains this. Um, Manchester's leadership ditched confrontational approach to central government and said we want to work with the with the government. We want to get good at winning um, public money. We want to get good at partnerships with private uh, money from the rest of the world, anywhere in the world. We will work with anyone who wants to put money into Manchester. And the key point is that those leaders in Manchester didn't dismiss the uh, Manchester music scene as just a bunch of kids larking around. They could see that this was the way economies were changing. So... Factory Records were sold around the world in the beautiful sleeves by Peter Saville, made the city seem an interesting place for artists and tastemakers. And of course, Hacienda Nightclub um, 
while became while it became notorious in some respects, also led to things like the Newsweek magazine cover uh, in 1990. The American sort of digest to Middle America told uh, Americans all about uh, the the groovy things going down in Madchester. Uh, you, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, the the trouble that Liverpool was having at the same time because not a lot of people know that Factory and Tony Wilson did organise a benefit gig for Liverpool City Council and this was a bill that was new order, the Smiths and the Fall and I think it was about 15 quid to get in. I went on the night, it was astonishing, never seen anything anything like it but the idea that there was a kind of a, a, a rancorous rivalry between the cities, not entirely true. Uh, yeah. Wilson actually had quite a fascination with the Liverpool music scene. Yeah, uh, and not only that, I mean, I've just read a book about the uh, legendary Roger Eagle, who mm. possibly is as important to Northwest music as Tony Wilson. And <laughs> there's a passage in the book I've never read before, which is an interview with Tony Wilson, in which he said that the idea for a record label was put in his head by Roger Eagle, who said he was starting an Eric's record label and t- would Tony like to be uh, on the A&R and... What happened after that was that Wilson blew Roger Eagle out and set up Factory Records in Manchester. And there's even a line, Tony Wilson saying, I, I don't know if I ever would have had the idea to set up a record label if Roger hadn't asked me. So there's a key kind of part, a key Liverpool element in that particular you know, chain reaction. So there's an alternative timeline where Eric's Records is the big deal. A new order around Eric, Eric's 003 or whatever. There we go. Take me through the multiverse to that place. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you more about that, about the Hacienda, because I remember it opened, I think it's 1982, and I'm I'm a kid. I can't go to clubs, so I'm reading about it in the NME. And everybody's talking about how it's a freezing meat locker with cold concrete floors and industrial girders holding the whole thing up. It was actually quite a long time before the uh, the Hacienda found its groove and stopped being a money pit, wasn't it? Spot on. I mean, from 82 to uh, 88, it struggled financially. It was it was capacity 1,500 people. Occasionally, it was full-ish for uh, certain bands or uh, Saturday nights were always quite busy. But it was only when the, the dance music scene, uh, you know, the technology-driven the drum machine music came in that the club became appropriate, if you like, for you know, for the, the numbers of people it was originally built for. So Wilson, when he first, um, I mean, there's a great Channel 4 documentary or interview with him that's available on YouTube. He says, you know, it is necessary for all cities to have their cathedrals, for popular culture. Paris and New York have them. And it, we in Manchester are the only people to found ourselves in a position uh, to furnish the city with such a building. Of course, that were Joy Division um, royalties, basically, coming through. You know, and what did they do? They didn't go to Monaco or Monte Carlo and, uh, or Mile of Man with the traditional Manchester millionaires 
route to become tax exiles. No, <laughs> they poured their money into this, you know, into this black hole. And it was only until, um, it was only when rave music happened that it was like the, the gods of popular culture had finally smiled on a hacienda. I always found it really kind of interesting um, and kind of encouraging that this kind of explosion of psychedelic, fluorescently coloured, hedonistic celebration basically had its roots, as you just said, paid for by the most existentially agonised monochrome music anyone has ever made, Joy Division. And it gives birth to, you know, the summer of love, house music and pure joy. Yeah. And and even further, if we could take it back at a, a darker stage um, backwards, Peter Saville, who gives me a very interesting interview, says that if you think about it in those terms, then all of it is predicated, it rests on the tragic suicide of Ian Curtis because mm. you know, the first Joy Division album, Unknown Pleasures, sold a quarter of a million. Uh, following Curtis's death, as we know in music business, death sells. They sold closer, sold two million. And it was that money that uh, went to um, went to create the Hacienda. And, um, you know, he Savile thinks there should be a statue to Ian Curtis in Albert Square. So, yeah, you know, we could trace these things back. And some people think, well, Manchester's got great universities and a very successful airport and all this stuff is just mere juvenilia. But, um, you know, I'm with Savile on that. It's interesting, though, you do point out that uh, I think £75,000 towards the uh, the doing up of the Hacienda came from the Central Manchester Development Corporation. It wasn't just purely financed by pop music. It's that the, the actual the gods of developments had come on board as well. So I wanted to ask you, what after the Hacienda had kind of established that um, that destination eventually um, on Whitworth Street? What 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 were the next key developments? I want to see where the dominoes started to fall after the Hacienda. Well, I think we can go in two directions. One, we can go down from Whitworth Street West uh, from the Hacienda towards the old Castlefield district where Colin Sinclair, um, a young promoter at Salford University, thought the Hacienda is built by 1,500 people, but they're getting three or 400 for live gigs and the sound is atrocious. Uh, often described as akin to a railway station public address system. So why don't I open a little club for for, for bands called The Boardwalk? And it was incredibly successful. And then he expanded it and it became uh, a dance club as well. Now, Colin Sinclair was then sort of yanked out of the world of rock and roll and ended up promoting Manchester's inward investment worldwide. But also in other... Um, towards the other end of town, towards the Gay Village. Um, well, the Gay Village was not the Gay Village. It was Canal Street back in the in the 80s. Then Carol Ainsco, uh, Bolton entrepreneur, said, I'm impressed and influenced by what Factory have done with the Hacienda and then their bar Dry on Oldham Street. She kick-started what's now, now known as the Gay Village with her bar Manto, which instead of this kind of furtive, atmosphere that uh, gay, gay and lesbian people had to sort of endure on Canal Street was a big open fronted and all were welcome to come and have a party and that's recognised um, by by all communities as the, what kickstarted the gay village and then you've got city centre living turning old buildings like the Hacienda was uh, Victorian warehouse turning vacant buildings no one knew what to do with into places to live 
Um, Tom Bloxham of Urban Splash um, cites Tony Wilson and what he did in Manchester as his inspiration for what is now, you know, the, the mainstay city centre living. So you can see the physical effects that putting, you know, what, what has Centre was called like a giant spaceship landing in the city, the, 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 the ripple effect that had on the development of, the t- of, of what we used to call town and is now this sort of monstrously uh, huge city centre. Notoriously, the Hacienda had to close down uh, after an invasion uh, of uh, the worsening local gun crime problem. Uh, Wilson and the and the management did their utmost to keep it going, but just just couldn't succeed. What did the Hacienda closing mean for the rebirth of Manchester? Because it was harder and harder to conceal the fact that you've got serious crime not far from the city centre. Yeah, I mean, that was a very turbulent period and the Hacienda um, had two... Uh, short-term closures, one enforced by the police and one voluntarily where they said, we're not, we're sick of this and we're not going to tolerate it anymore. Both times the club reopened. And this, I think, is a pivotal message of my book because I talked before about the leaders of the city thinking, we've got something the other cities haven't got, a world-famous club. So even though the place had become a carnival of crime, the leaders of the council lobbied the police and the magistrates. They even got the MP, Bob Liverland, to write to the police and the magistrates saying, this is an important place serving the new economy of tourism and leisure. We've got to keep it open. And it did stay open until 1997. But I suppose that is a key point that um, in any other city of the world, of course, it would have been shut down as a a crime scene. Uh, What did Manchester do? No, it's important. People know it around the world. We're going to keep it open. I, I suppose, in retrospect, it was probably an unwise move to have crime scene tape as the kind of key visual motif on the uh, on the on the girders holding the roof up. Perhaps they predicted their own misfortune there. I don't know. I mean, full disclosure: uh, your own PR agency uh, worked on the launch of major Manchester projects like the Beetham Tower, the Lowry, uh, Urbis, lots of things with the developers Urban Splash. Mm. Um, Andy, can you be fully objective here when you're in on the, de- the redevelopment of Manchester? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, one that, you know, I, I've kind of struggled with. I think the answer to that is I don't work for any of those organisations or businesses anymore. And that working for them gave me insights. I was inside the room where it happened, as opposed to waiting to hear about things after decisions were made. Um, yeah, it could be can be said to be um, compromised in one respect, but also um, revelatory in other respects. With 43 years in the city under your belt, you are now entitled to play the old, uh, you know, it weren't like this in my day card. How do you feel about Manhattan? You know, the new gleaming skyscrapers that tower over everybody. I think you told the Manchester Evening News you felt a bit guilty about being part of that change from the romantic grubbiness of the past. Yeah, I think I, I was um, a little bit um, unhappy with the headline, which was a sort of dismemberment of a quote. I think the line that I do like to take is that I feel uh, about the city like um, a fan of an indie band who um, first saw them in, in a little club feels you know, guilty now they are playing, uh, they're headlining stadiums that uh, my evangel- evangelising played a, a part in it all. I mean, cities have got to change and no one could really say that uh, the old Manchester was a better place than today in terms of jobs and activ- and life and, and life chances for people. Um, but it did have a charisma 
They did have um, a, that grubby charm that some of us miss. And um, Tony Wilson was right when he said nostalgia is a disease. Um, you know, it's easy to get seduced by by the memories. Um, I enjoy Manchester now just as much as, as I did then. Um, but then I was a 20-year-old and now I'm a 61-year-old. So uh, <laughs> cities change, people change. You know, one thing that I do point out in the book is the overuse of the Wilson phrase, uh, this is Manchester, we do things differently here. You know, I call it a Mancunian dog whistle used by politicians who wanted to carry favour with the electorate. And you see it everywhere from coffee shops and hotel lobbies. Um, And so those kind of things make, you know, make Wilson, the Hacienda factory, in danger of becoming a cliché when really we should be valuing all those things for the part they played, but looking forward to a you know a different Manchester going forward. Of course, if they were quoting Wilson accurately, they'd say, this is Manchester, darling, we do things differently here. Use that word a lot. Yeah. Just in closing then, um, do you think there are lessons for elsewhere from what Manchester managed to do with its pop culture heritage? I mean, like I say, there are a lot of cities with incredible music where it's sort of, you know, Liverpool is great now, but I don't think you could say it was based so much on the pop culture yeah. as it is based on football and, and other things. Yeah. Can this kind of thing happen elsewhere or do you actually need a local myth maker like Wilson to run around calling everybody darling and transforming the place into a modern legend? Yeah, I mean, I call it Mancunian exceptionalism, don't I? Because, yeah, Man- uh, you know, Manchester did have Granada TV, you know, we did have national newspaper offices here. You know, we did have advantages that other cities have, didn't have. But I think all cities should give space to the artists to create their authentic homegrown culture. Um, and that should be away from officialdom, away from corporate interests, let the authentic voice, if you like, of that place emerge through you know, music and, and other forms of art. Because I think once you start to force it, to try and make it happen, even, you know, even with well-intentioned, uh, often councils try to set up studios and, and it comes like a dead hand of bureaucracy. You kind of got to create spaces where artists can get on and do their own thing. And every place, of course, has got its own history and its own qualities. They need to, they need to be allowed to express themselves. What's your favourite Manchester band and what's your favourite Manchester record? Oh, um, I'd have to say Buzzcocks. Um, I don't mind. We'll stick a link to that in the show notes. Andy Spinoza, thanks so much for joining me and talking to us. Pleasure. Brilliant. Manchester Unspun, Pop, Property and Power in the Original Modern City is available now from all good booksellers. We'll put a link in the show notes again. And if you want to support other important regeneration projects, why not consider backing the bunker on Patreon? You'll be helping to pay the wages of young worker bee producers and editors as they toil away in our own sumptuous Hacienda, which is also a freezing cold basement held up by industrial beams. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. We are 24-hour, 24-hour, 24-hour podcast people. See you next time. Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio production is by me, Robin Lieburn. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.